Friends, what is love? What does it mean to love someone else? In our current cultural climate, we use the word often. We throw it around a lot. I love you. Love is love, we hear often. Oftentimes in our culture, it is defined in merely emotional or romantic terms. It's often described as an ever-changing tide. We will hear, I don't love you anymore, or I fell out of love with him or her. Love so often has become defined as a a self-defined term, like in that phrase, love is love. Logically speaking, love isn't love. It, It can't define itself. Some, we have to give some definition to what love is. But, but in a culture that seeks to be self-identified, a culture that seeks to identify words and even self in its own terms, rather than some standard, some basis, some foundation, it has become more, that is love, more about personal preferences and rights than on action. So let me ask you a number of questions. First, how do your kids know that you love them? How does your spouse, if you have one, know that you love them? How does your family know that you love them? How do your friends know that you love them? Is it because you say, I love you? Is it because you write it on their Hallmark birthday cards? I I love you, sweetie. How does someone know? How how are we to know if we were to come over to your house, sit with you at dinner, hang out with you in the backyard? How would we know that you love your family, your friends, and your neighbors? Would it be because you run around the yard telling them, I love you, I love you? If that was the case, we would think something's wrong with you. (laughs) Now, we understand that love is rightly understood to be a verb. It's an action. It's not merely an emotion. Love is demonstrated by our care for others, our provisions of others, our protection of others, our mere presence among others. Our actions are interpreted in one of two ways. Either they are understood to be loving or unloving. And friends, this is really the point I'm driving at. That we unknowingly pick up our understanding of love from the surrounding culture. So often, without knowing it, we we brush up, we rub up against our culture so often every day in our life. From the media we consume to the the friends we are around, we, we take our understanding of what love is from the wider culture rather than from the Bible. 
And what orients us, what keeps us on the, the straight path, the right path, is for us to open our Bibles and to understand from a biblical worldview, how are we to show love? So when Jesus commands us to love our enemies, does that mean that we are to have some emotional desire for them? Well, clearly not. But we are to demonstrate our love for them in Christ. And so our hope this morning is for us to understand what does it mean to love the way that God loves. To rightly answer that, we must know how God loves. Now, before we dive into the text, I just want to set up the context a bit. On the heels of his instructions regarding revenge, Jesus here calls his disciples to a higher plane, a greater righteousness. They were not to only love those who love them. That was basic love. Reciprocal love is ordinary love. God is calling his people to an extraordinary love, a love that continues to love and pray for those who persecute them. You remember earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his disciples, listen, if your righteousness does not exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't even get into heaven. And here at the end of this passage this morning, Jesus makes probably the most provocative statement in all of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless you are perfect, he says, like your heavenly father is perfect. What? I thought we lived by faith. I thought we didn't have to earn through doing good things. What do you mean we have to be perfect in order to get into heaven? Jesus here does not call his disciples to a righteousness that is born out of human effort, a righteousness that is um, that is a quantity quantity righteousness that is more righteousness, but the quality of righteousness. In other words, Jesus here is after the heart of the law, not just merely obeying the letter of the law. Jesus here is calling you and I to an exceedingly greater and better righteousness than merely obeying commands. And this righteousness will be cultivated by a greater quality rather than quantity. Jesus is not after us obeying more and more commands, but doing so in a way, as he describes, is perfect, complete, as his heavenly father is perfect. I invite you to turn, if you've not done so already, to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 43. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. This is Jesus speaking. He says to his disciples, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, I've sought to summarize this in this way. This is what I believe Jesus is aiming at. That indiscriminately loving others reflects the character of God the Father and demonstrates to the world that we are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. The kind of love that Jesus calls us to here is not a conditional love, not a discriminatory love, but an indiscriminate love, an unconditional love, not based on the deservance of the object of our love, but based on the love that we have ourselves enjoyed from God himself. So the purpose of us really to encourage us, to remind us that as Christians, we are to reflect the character of God. Twice in that passage, he refers to God as father and we then as children. So calling God Father isn't merely a title, an office, but a relationship. And that if he's our father, then we're his children, and and children act like their fathers. Right? All the wives are like, amen, they do. (laughs) Man, acting just like your father. As Christians, we are to reflect the character of God the Father by... Following Jesus' command to love indiscriminately. To love the way God loves even those who curse him. And so Jesus here outlines three aspects of loving others. First, we are to love others indiscriminate. Second, we are to love others, or loving others rather, reflects God's character. So we want to think about how Our loving of enemy reflects the character of God. And finally, we'll see that as we love others, we reflect the character of God and demonstrate to the world around us that we are followers of Jesus. You could say it in the reverse order. That the world would know that we are followers of Jesus because we reflect the character of God by our indiscriminate love of others. It's what sets us apart. It's what makes us salt and light. It's what makes us different. It's what makes us strange. It's what makes us peculiar and weird. So this morning we want to think about this thing in three aspects. First, loving others is indiscriminate. Look here with me at verse 43. Jesus says, and you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, to be clear here, and it it seems confusing here that throughout this section, Jesus has confronted three antithesis to the to the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus here isn't saying I am undoing the Old Testament law or I have come to create a new law. I'm here to abolish the law. No, rather, Jesus says, whoever sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do likewise is least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is by no means setting the law aside, but he's seeking to undo wrong interpretation and application 
of the Old Testament law. Jesus is confronting wrong ideas, and that's why he begins each one by saying, you have heard that it was said. In other words, literally, it was written, it was commanded, and someone has interpreted, applied it in this way. Make sense? So what Jesus is saying is, is that you've heard It taught to you in the synagogue that you are to love your neighbor. And let me help you understand what your neighbor is or who your neighbor is. It is only those who do good to you. Therefore, you are to hate those who do bad. That's what they would have heard. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament were the Israelites ever commanded to hate their enemies. And so Jesus is not saying in this passage that, you know, there's an Old Testament verse. God said you need to hate your enemies. No, rather, Jesus here appeals to Leviticus chapter 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. um, And helps to understand what really is at the heart of this subject is one's understanding of who is my neighbor. Now, we know a little bit of this from Jesus's teaching Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, concerning the Good Samaritan. Uh, Even secular folks know the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, And and the story of the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is confronting this question, who is my neighbor? Because at the heart of of this misinterpretation was in interpreting that one's neighbor was only those who were close in proximity within one's own circle or tribe. Therefore, anyone outside of that neighbor group, they didn't have to show love for. So again, Leviticus chapter 19 says this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In the very context of the verse that Jesus is quoting, God commands them not to hate. So again... Jesus here is seeking to confront one's own misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. It's similar to this, brothers and sisters. Perhaps you, in discussion with a non-Christian, or yourself misunderstood this morning, oftentimes you'll hear God spoken of this way. Well, the God of the Old Testament, he was a God of wrath. He was a God of anger. He was a God of judgment. And then Jesus came. He was a God of love and compassion and mercy and gentleness. Anyone that ever says that to me, uh, my first response, though I don't often say it, is that you've never read the Bible. Because frankly, Jesus is a little harder than the God of the Old Testament. He's a little clear on some things. You see, the God of the Old Testament was patient He was long-suffering. He was, he waited 400 years. He dealt with some really messed up people in the wilderness. Then after the wilderness, and he blessed them with this land and he gave it to them. And he he says, be prosperous here. Here's a land flowing with milk and honey. What do they do? 
like, oh, God, we love you, but like, we want to be like the nations around us. We want a king like them. And God's like, sure, you can have a king like them. Uh, and it was 400 years of spiraling down in sin until God finally judged them and exiled them. But yet, even in their exile, he was gracious to them and blessed them and cared for them and provided for them. You see, God of the Bible is a God, as we've read, who is long-suffering, who is steadfast. And Jesus here is confronting this wrong notion about our God. Our God being merely a God of judgment. Yes, he is a God of judgment, but he is also a God of grace. And through the Abrahamic covenant, the nation of Israel was not to be a curse to the nations. But you see, they became a curse to the nations. Why? Because they disobeyed God. Not because they obeyed God. The nation of Israel is a curse to any nation when it lives in rebellion against the one true and living God. In the Abrahamic covenant itself, it says, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Through him. You see, the nation of Israel was to be a light. A light of who God is. Yet they fell and fell short of that. And Jesus here is correcting the course in which they had been on. By commanding us in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, he says. Now, this morning you might think, well, I don't have any enemies. I don't, I don't make it my nature to have enemies. The point Jesus is making here is that not that you have enemies or that you have people who are persecuting you, but that you love all people indiscriminately, even your enemies. You see? That you don't have special categories of your love. That, that you reserve your love for only a subset of your neighbors, he says. You, did you see, you see the point? You see, because Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount in what way? One of the Beatitudes in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, what? Sons of God. And so it's not natural for us to have a bunch of enemies. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is, is, again, that we are not to set aside our love and say it's only for Christians. Our love is only for people who love us or are kind to us or are generous towards us. No, Jesus says, no, you are to love others, all others, as you love yourself. Now, naturally, in, the, in a fallen world, you and I will accumulate a number of enemies. We may not want them to be our enemies, but nonetheless, they are our enemies. We will, in a fallen world, in our day and age, in the, in the growing hostility, there is a spirit of hostility among Christians in the public square. And even the government of the United States is sort of hostility to Christian values and virtues and, and certain Christian beliefs. You will face a hostility. It may be even a persecution. You will be passed over promotions because of certain positions you take that our culture embraces. 
Even in this past year, there's been a number of brothers and sisters who have faced persecution because they gathered on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord. And the state has sought to persecute them because of that. And what are we to rightly do in response? We are to, as Jesus says, love and pray. Now, the verbal aspect that Jesus uses here is one of continual love. It's not just you love him one time, you pray for them once, but rather a perpetual, ongoing love and prayer. We ought to regularly demonstrate our love for our enemies by praying for them. Friend, are there those in your life that might fit that category of enemy? Friend, we are no more like Jesus than we use the words of Jesus in this way. Remember on the, on the cross, Jesus says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You want to reflect Jesus' character. Do what Jesus did. He forgave others, even those that were killing him. Or as Paul, as we thought about last week in Romans chapter 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Or look at the example of Stephen. Stephen, standing boldly on the truth, being persecuted by the Jewish people, being stoned to death by his own brothers and sisters, his own kindred, his own family. He fell on his knees, the Apostle Luke says, and And cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold it against them. Could you do that? Could you say that for your enemy right now? The one who is causing you pain and grief in your life? Forgive them? Or the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but bless, he says. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Friend, do you find it difficult to love others indiscriminately? Do, do you love with strings attached? Is your love always conditional? We joked about it last week. Do you love because people love you? Do you give gifts because people give you gifts? See, biblical love is unconditional. We we don't get the, the ledger out and mark off all the good people do and write down all the bad. And if the good outweighs the bad, then we love them. No, we are to love indiscriminately. We are to love all. Now, this doesn't mean that we accept all that they do or say. We we don't seem to brush away their attacks or, or say that they're not hurtful. Nor do we mean that it is a romantic love, an affectionate love. Again, Jesus here isn't saying have some sort of warm feeling and fuzziness inside. Not at all. Again, biblical love is is action. We show our love for others. And that may mean, frankly, Telling them the truth about who Jesus is. I know in this world, in our day and age, it, it seems unloving when we correct others. But some, sometimes that could be the way we show love. And do you regularly pray, friend, for those who do you harm? One of the most humble ways, one of the ways that we humble ourselves, rather, 
is by bending our need and crying out for the sake of others. I have found this. The more you pray for those you don't like, the more you will like them. And I'm just talking about church people. So perhaps for you, the way you love your enemy is by forgiving them. You know, so often in intense relationships, we are always looking for the other party to, to do something. We're always looking for them to act. Friend, you can't make someone do anything. But you have a responsibility to forgive others. And perhaps the way you need to show love this morning is just by forgiving them. Even though they may be undeserving, so are you. So are you. If then you have been forgiven, then we ought to forgive others. The forgiveness that we have received in Christ is license to forgive. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Let us demonstrate this Christian love. Not an emotional, not an idea, but an action. An action that is indiscriminate of the object of one's love. Let us love one another regardless of their worthiness. In doing so, we reflect the Father's character. Let's look here at this next phrase, he says, in verse 45. So that you may become or be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Do you see the purpose statement there? You see the causation there? That by loving indiscriminately, there is a purpose, there is an aim in doing it. We do not love others aimlessly, without purpose. No, the purpose in loving others is to reflect the Father's character, he says. Literally, there is a progression in the statement. So that you may become... Sons of your father. Now, do not misunderstand that. Do not misunderstand the statement to mean that by obeying Jesus, you become a Christian or you become a child of God. That's not at all. The picture here is one of progressive sanctification. That by setting aside our personal rights and privileges for the sake of others to love them, we little by little, as the Apostle Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next, begin to reflect the character of God in our lives. You heard me earlier, Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. Reflect the character. God is a peacemaker. Peacemakers are those who forgive their enemies, who love their enemies, who pray for their enemies. In this way, we reflect the character of God. One of the most simplest and, and really profound statements that the Apostle Paul makes is in Ephesians chapter 1, or Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 1, rather. He says this Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. As beloved children. 
In other words, because you are loved of God, you are to take on the family resemblance and love others. You are to imitate God by loving, he says. You are to reflect that you are a child of God through our love. Of course, the Apostle John spends a lot of time in 1 John, you can read that on your own, where he develops that theme that that one demonstrates, proves that they're child of God by their love for others. Jesus here, rather, reveals to us the character of God as he continues to unfold his support. Look here at the latter half of verse 5. For God, the Father, makes his Son, that is the sun in the sky, rise... On the evil and on the good, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus here demonstrates that the Father is behind the sun rising and the sun falling. That the rain comes, it falls, and it's withheld by the sovereign purposes of God. That God providentially provides for all people indiscriminately, doesn't he? You see, God measures his love in that he does not withhold the son upon those who curse him. This is a profound, brothers and sisters, a profound worldview changer. Okay? It is so contrary to how a a Darwinian worldview thinks. This is what sets you apart from those around you. That you believe that your God is not a capricious God. A God trying to settle scores. A God not being finicky with his love. But a God who demonstrates his love indiscriminately by allowing the sun to come up. Their crops to grow with rain and sun. Right, The things that we, the basic needs of life. God provides to all. Jesus will talk about this a little bit more at the end of chapter 6 when he exhorts us not to be anxious because our God is providential. He provides regardless of our worth. This is your God. This is a God we gather to worship this morning. A, A God who is unconditional in his love for people. We say we uphold the sanctity of human life. We believe that every human being, irregardless of their perceived value or worth in our society, is worthy of life, right? We champion that. We uphold that. We picket that. We march for that. But we rarely demonstrate it by our love for others indiscriminately. Let us uphold the sanctity of human life. From conception to grave. But let us also love others, even our enemies. In doing this, we reflect the character of God. In a parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Similarly to what he says here, Act like your daddy in heaven. Your father is gracious, indiscriminate of whether they are evil or good, whether they are just or unjust, whether they are worthy or unworthy. He loves them by providing for them in the same way we also. 
Of course, you heard early in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died. Clearly, this is a particular love. A very different love than that general love that he shows to all the unjust and the just. But, but the truth still remains. We were unworthy of love. We were undeserving of love. We weren't even looking for God's love. We were sinners. We were rebels. But God loved us. Friend, the point is, how are you tempted to only love those whom will love you in return? How have you sought to redefine who your neighbor is? Perhaps you love with strings attached. I'll love you if I know you won't stab me in the back. If you'll be faithful to me. If you'll honor me. You see, the way God loves is a God who loves by telling others about Jesus. Perhaps for you today, your love is by telling them the gospel. I know in my own life, when people hurt you, it's really hard to tell them about Jesus. (laughs) It's real easy to withhold the gospel from someone as a measure of vengeance, isn't it not? I know the truth. I know how to get you out of this mess you're in in your life. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep it close to to hand. And I know what's going to happen. You're going to go to hell. Now you might not say that, but we often do it. We often demonstrate our lack of love by our lack of evangelism. Do you really love your neighbor? Why don't you tell him about Jesus? Why don't you tell him the truth about who Jesus is? This means inviting others into your life with the intentionality of leading people to Jesus. The reason why we don't see more people come to Jesus is because the only people we hang around are people who already know Jesus. The reason why evangelism's down is because we don't hang around people that need to be evangelized. More than that, we tend to only hang around people that are like us. We love others by being around those who are not like us. By laying aside Personal preferences. Brothers, let me just commend you to this right here. Let me just commend you on this personal preference note because this tends to strike at the heart of a lot of our issues. You see, we confuse these two P's. Personal preference from principle. And what we do so often is make preference principle. We, we take our personal preferences, which are not founded on any principle, it's just what we prefer, and we make others affirm the same. Just because you like pepperoni pizza don't mean everybody got to like pepperoni pizza. That, but that's how we act. Because we like something, everyone around us has to like the exact same thing. Just because everybody looks the same or thinks the same. Let me commend Pastor Rod's upcoming sermon on Christian liberty. Loving those who may have different convictions on matters of conscience than you. 
More than that, we are to love those outside our theological tribe. One of the the things we don't want to be is uncharitable. This is why we want... Look, we want to talk about revival. I know good Baptist folks, they love revival. They like to even try to generate revival. Um, But here's the truth. Here's the question I have for you this morning. Do you want to see revival in this city? What if, what if God sends revival in this city, but it's through that church down the street and not this one? Well, if you say, well, that's not fair, then you don't really want to see revival. What I mean is I want my church. No, no, no. Do you want to see people come to know Jesus? Do you really love others? Friends, that's why we often pray for churches outside of our own tribe, our own denominational convictions. Why? As long as they're preaching Jesus, we might have a few things a little bit different. We might do things a little bit different. But friends, the point is we want to see people because we love our enemies. Love others by forgiving Love others by being merciful. Love others by showing grace, by being patient. And here is the best and most thing. See the best in others and not the worst in others. We tend to paint our our enemies as the worst rather than seeing the best in them. Unconditional love reflects the love of God in Christ. Finally, our final point in verses 46 and 48. We're to love others. And by doing so, we demonstrate That we are Jesus' disciples. Jesus here confronts worldly love. Look what he says. Look at these questions he asks us. For if you, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more Are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This is, this is, he gets us here. He said, listen, if you just love people who love you all the time, that's worldly love. That's basic love. That's ordinary love. In other words, there's no reward in loving those who are going to love you in return. And Jesus here elevates the command and he says, look, you are to love others indiscriminately, not based on their love for you. In doing so, you have a greater love. Look there at verse 47. What more are you doing? In other words, where where is this exceedingly greater love? Where is this exceeding righteousness? If you're just doing what even sinners do, the reprobate. Those who are rebellious against God. In other words, when only, pe- when the only people we love are the people like us, who think like us, who believe like us, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't misunderstand. We ought to love one another. We ought to love the brothers and sisters in the church. Jesus isn't saying we ought not to do that. But we ought, he says, to broaden our horizons, open our eyes to a greater field of love. A love that demonstrates ourselves to be set apart. As John records for us, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
Or as John records in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love others. Unconditional love, brothers and sisters, is godly love. Indiscriminate love is godly love. This is why Jesus concludes with this very provocative statement that seems confusing on the face value. In verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You might think, my goodness, this is works righteousness. I've got to be perfect as God is perfect. You're misunderstanding Jesus' point. Remember, Jesus' teaching is, is coming out of the Old Testament. Jesus here is helping understand, giving interpretation, right interpretation of the law. Well, in Leviticus 19, where God is commanding them to love their neighbor as their self, he also says to them that you are to be holy as I am holy. Jesus is saying similarly, that you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, you are to take the standard of love from who God is and not from the world. In other words, you and I cannot define love apart from the love that God has demonstrated to us in Christ, that this is the basis of our own love. This is the standard. This is the measuring rod. This is what we aim. Jesus doesn't put the bar low and say, well, I hope you can jump over it. He puts the bar high that we might strive to be as God is. Not perfect as God is perfect, but strive to be complete as God is complete, to be holy as God is holy. In doing each of these things beyond even this morning loving our neighbors to fighting against anger and lust and avoiding divorce and not letting our yes be yes and not seeking vengeance but trusting the Lord. In these ways, brothers and sisters, we demonstrate God's love for us and his holiness. Our unconditional, indiscriminate love for others, even our enemies, demonstrates to one another and to the world that we are Jesus' disciples. It is this indiscriminate, unconditional love that reflects God's character to others. That demonstrates, and we are able to say, this is how God is. Did you see so-and-so in the way they unconditionally love those people? Those, that, that individual who hurt them, who caused pain to them and suffering, their enemy, and the way they prayed for their salvation? One can't but think of the, the wife of Jim Elliot, the great missionary, murdered, by the very people he sought to reach. And his wife praying diligently for the salvation of the tribesmen who murdered her husband. And by God's grace, he answered those prayers. The tribe converted to know Christ. Brothers and sisters, by loving those who do not love us, 
we reflect God's character of unconditional love to an unloving world. We demonstrate that we are genuine followers of Jesus when we love our enemies even as we love ourselves. And I leave you this, with this quote from J.C. Ryle. Unfailing courtesy, kindness, tenderness, and consideration for others are some of the greatest ornaments to the character of a child of God. He says the world can understand these things if it cannot understand doctrine. There is no religion in rudeness, roughness, bluntness, and incivility. The perfection of practical Christianity consists in attending to the little duties of holiness as well as to the great. Friend, don't brush over love for enemy as a mere little act in practical Christianity. But attend to it the way you attend to other matters of following Jesus. Love your neighbor for God's glory, we pray. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would, by your spirit, give us strength. We by no means to make little of this command. We by no means think it to be easy in this season to love those who are unloving towards us. And we just pray as we sit around the table and participate in the family feast, a reflection of heaven, reflection of the marriage supper of the Lamb, May we be reminded of all that we've been forgiven of. Remind us, Holy Spirit, of, of the many ways that, that the Father has been patient with us. In those seasons of rebellion, in those seasons of waywardness, in those seasons where we have fallen short. Remind us that while we were yet sinners, that Christ shed his own blood his body broken as a substitute for us. And let us show the same generosity towards others. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.